last section of Mark, last week if you remember. Jesus Christ began to make it clear that the proper response to him is not more religion. And it isn't the construction of a new religion as the world defines the word. The appropriate response to Jesus is something that really isn't religious per se at all. Because with the coming of the bridegroom into the world, along with the abolishment of this idea that we might become righteous enough for God to accept us by our works, comes faith. What saves us, what makes us right with God and washes away our guilt and our brokenness, is believing His Son. Jesus brought life to a world cursed under the constant shadow and fear of death. And because of that, Jesus will be crucified by the representatives of religion. Again, the opposite of evil is not morality. The opposite of evil is faith. Faith is what saves us, or ends the power and pressure of salvation by goodness. So it levels the playing field regardless of a person's record. And says that God will accept anyone and everyone who simply says to Jesus, I believe you, you died for me, you rose from the dead, you're all I have, forgive me, save me. Those who desire to be righteous through their own goodness hate the fact that God's grace saves us by faith. And so they never stop attacking it. They're always in the church, they're always near the church. They're always in the world. Grace will always be attacked as insufficient to tell the story by people who believe that they are saved by their works. Jesus brought something entirely new that can't be squeezed into old wineskins. He came to rescue us from the old way. A way that isn't just here to patch up and continue on with an old system. A new vision of life itself has been revealed, and the only proper response to it is to believe Jesus and throw yourself on him completely. The hero of all humanity who came down from heaven. Jesus and the way, the new way he proclaimed were misunderstood and rejected by his family and his contemporaries to the point of blasphemy. But he had come to forgive sins and build a new people. By destroying the power of the devil and the world's religion. Jesus Christ came down from heaven to deliver us from the power of the devil. From the bondage of the law. And from the power and penalty of all our sin. To create a new people of God who proclaim that message, that truth to the world. So let's look at this text and let me tell you about him. Verse 7 of Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, They fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. The middle of chapter three finds Jesus growing even more in popularity. Understandably, people were flocking to Jesus mainly because he could heal physical diseases and disabilities. Not really to hear his word, not at least mainly, but Jesus loved people. And so he continued to heal 
but also continued to proclaim the gospel as he stated his purpose was in chapter 1, verse 38. But these crowds, the size of them, the pressure of them, are becoming problematic. We know from chapter 1 that Jesus couldn't enter a city anymore. He had to stay in desolate places. He simply could not minister to all the people who wanted his help. And here, he actually has his disciples make provision for him to escape if needed so that the crowds won't crush him. That's how big it was becoming. If you've ever been in a giant crowd that gets riled up and starts to push, you know what that feels like. Jesus didn't turn people away, but Jesus also wasn't after fans either, right? He's after a different kind of following than the kind that comes from simple popularity. Jesus is creating a whole new people, a people we are discovering that won't be bound by the law or man-made religion, but a people who believe in him as their savior by grace through faith, a people who will make God's grace and mercy for sinners known to the lost and dying world. That's why he continues to strictly order, as the text says, the demons who know his identity to stay silent. Jesus needs to rework Israel's understanding of who the Messiah is and the kingdom he brings, or it's going to make the mission he's on even more difficult to accomplish. We read in 1, 16 through 20 and 2, 13 through 17 that Jesus had already begun to gather this new people to himself. And in these next verses, he solidifies this group as the beginning of the new people he's creating. We pick it up in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. In every list of disciples, he's always first. Judas Iscariot is always last. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, that's Levi, from chapter 2. And Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Jesus officially assembles the twelve disciples on the mountain. Jesus called them to himself, not to a trade, not to his study, but to him. And he called the ones he wanted, because he's sovereign Just as God called Israel out of all the nations of the world to himself, they all came, these disciples, and they all came willingly. This is a picture of what Jesus does for the whole kingdom of God. He calls those he wants. Luke 22, or Luke 10, 22, John 6, 37. The Greek word used for church in the New Testament is ecclesia. It's made up of a prefix and a root. Ek, which means out of or from, and kaleo, which means to call. So church, ecclesia, means those who are the called out ones. The invisible church, the true church, is composed of those who are called by God to come and be his people. Disciples of Jesus. Lifelong learners of Jesus. They go with him. They belong to him. Follow him. Learn from him. It's very true that the faith that justifies a person and makes one right with God is one's own faith, right? No one can be justified by a spouse's faith or a parent's faith or anyone else's. But every time Jesus saves an individual person, he places them in a group. It's not just Jesus and me, right? 
We're called into a group, into a people, a family, a body, the locus of God's new community on the earth. And the Greek word translated as appointed here in verse 14 is a form of a verb that also means to make something or to create something. This is very interesting. It's the exact same word used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He didn't pick Adam and Eve. He actually created them. In the same way, Jesus didn't simply appoint some guys to this new task. He made them into something. He's creating something here. When he calls these 12 men, he chose to himself something new. Beloved, he's creating the church in Mark chapter 3. And these men and everyone who believed in the Jesus they did would turn the world upside down one day in Acts 17.6. Why did Jesus choose 12? It's a very specific number. And obviously, what is the text established? Way more than 12 people are interested in Jesus. Way more than 12 people are following him, listening to him. Well, a first century Jewish person would have immediately made the connection between the number of disciples and the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's good because these 12 disciples symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, I believe this, they are the new nucleus of the people of God in the world. And like them, those who listen to the message Jesus proclaims are members of the new Israel, not a replacement Israel, but the fulfillment of God's word and his eternal purpose for Israel. That is massive, by the way, to understanding scripture. I think it needs to inform the way we read our entire Bibles, the difference Jesus comes and makes, what he accomplishes. His intention in choosing 12 helps us understand why it is later in Acts chapter 1 that the apostles are so intent on preserving that specific number when Judas, of course, departs, to put it lightly, and they add Matthias. To replace him. The 12 tribes come, of course, from Jacob's 12 sons in Genesis 29 and 30 and 35. Each tribe was apportioned a plot of land in Canaan, except Levi, right? The tribe of priests, as God would be their inheritance. And each tribe was expected to follow the old covenant stipulations that were made at Mount Sinai. Moses also charged them all to function in a sense as priests to the pagan Gentile nations around them by bringing them into the covenant community. That commission corresponds back to Adam and Eve and God's commission to them to be fruitful and multiply and in so doing extend God's glory in Eden to cover the whole earth, now through Israel to cover the whole earth. But old covenant Israel failed at both just as Adam and Eve had done. They repeatedly, Israel broke the covenant. They refused to bring the nations into the covenant community, but their failure sets the stage for the arrival of the true Israel, who is Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, who will fulfill both of these obligations God has had for his son in the world. That's precisely the work Jesus is beginning to do in Mark. That's why it's here. It is why when, after Jesus has accomplished the work, that purchases salvation for all the nations through his life, death, and resurrection as the true Israel, as the new Adam, he will give the fulfillment of the physical commission 
all the way back from the beginning to be fruitful and multiply with the spiritual commission to fill the earth with believers when he says, now go and make disciples of all nations. Be fruitful and multiply, carried on through Israel, fulfilled in Jesus, is now go and make disciples. And Habakkuk's prophecy will come true as the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the glory of God covers the world, the sea, through the proclamation of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Jesus Christ, the true Israel, the fulfillment of Hosea 11.1 in Matthew 2.15, when out of Egypt God called his son. Jesus recapitulates Israel's story, doesn't he, in his baptism through water, his wilderness temptation, all those things. But Jesus succeeded where every son before him had failed. He not only locates true Israel in himself, he also reconstitutes Israel by assembling these 12 disciples on the mountain. Nothing Jesus did was happenstance. Just as Moses gathered Israel on Sinai and commissioned them, Jesus draws the 12 together on the mountain and commissions them to spread the message of God's kingdom and God's glory. They are given the authority of Jesus to cast out demons Because they corporately, as a group, identify with him to preach the word. The one who has conquered Satan by overcoming his temptation in the wilderness right out of the gate in his earthly ministry. The community Jesus is building building here was for three things, apparently. To be with him, first of all. To be with him. What a privilege. What a gift. That's how, by the way, disciples are made. People walk with you while you walk with Jesus. You're with him. They're with you. You're with Jesus. That's what it is to be a lifelong learner of him. Disciples preach his message. Cast out demons. Resist evil when Jesus was here. They're to join him in proclaiming the arrival of the king, the arrival of his kingdom. They are his selection in verse 13, beloved. They didn't pick him. He picked them. And he creates them to be what he has called them to be. Makes provision for them to be what he has called them to be. Now notice in that same section, his blood family thinks he's crazy. Notice that. That's right in the same section. There at the end of the text. We know from verses 31 through 35 that the people who went out to seize him were in fact members of his family. As the ESV actually translated in verse 21, the new community then, he's showing what he talked about in chapter 2. The new community breaks all the old earthly ties, even family. That's how deep it goes, even family. There isn't a wineskin or a garment in the whole world that is fit for the new way Jesus brought. Not one, not even family. Not even family. So it's not just his family or the demons, however, that oppose Jesus. So does the religious establishment in Israel. We pick it up in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 
And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Selah, beloved. Ponder that. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For... They were saying, he has an unclean spirit. His family thinks he's out of his mind, which is very interesting. Apparently he had done nothing. And I I mean, I'm not being coy. Apparently, Jesus had done nothing in the first 30 years of his life that would have solidified for the family that he was who he claimed to be. So this is all new to them, right? All new to them. His family thinks he's out of his mind, right? Who... Not only that, but who goes against the religious leadership in Israel? What are you doing? You know, we, we gotta protect him from himself. But the scribes say, they, they say something different. They say he's possessed by Beelzebul and gets his authority and power from the prince of the demons. There's no way God would empower the son of a carpenter that wouldn't honor or who broke their religious traditions. Mark tells us these scribes are from Jerusalem, anticipating the suffering, the rejection our Lord will suffer in Jerusalem. But their accusation is extremely harsh. They say he gets his power from Beelzebul. Now, that's a different name than Beelzebul, the Lord of the Flies. We don't know exactly what Beelzebul means, to be honest, but we do know They meant it to identify Jesus with Satan. So not only do they reject Jesus and refuse to believe in him, they also say that he gets his amazing miracle-working power from Satan himself. Satan's behind him. Satan's giving his power. Satan's doing all of it. So the only one capable of performing these exorcisms with such power would have to be a mole. Like, it'd have to be somebody on the inside. So Jesus tells a parable. Jesus was amazing. And I I know it's like, well, duh. (laughs) But I mean, beloved, his, his holiness, his glory, his beauty, his strength, his courage. When he hears, either hears them talking or somebody tells him, they're saying you're possessed by Satan, basically. You get your power. You know what he does? He doesn't sulk like I would. He goes, hey, come here. Come here. I want to talk to you guys for a minute. I love this. The first question he asks is, how can Satan cast out Satan? Then he speaks about kingdoms, right? If a, if a kingdom is divided, it won't last. Internal strife would kill a kingdom. And a kingdom has to be unified in order to withstand an attack. It's the same apparently with a house, which is very interesting. The implications for our homes A house has to be united or unified in its objective or the house won't last. The family won't last. If Satan is out tearing up his own kingdom, it isn't going to last. Right. That's what he's saying. Verse 27. But then he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And I think we can understand Jesus's point here. If you want to pillage a house, 
You'd have to defeat the guardian of the house first or he'll kill you. Right? So, with that in mind, let me read the prophet Isaiah to you. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you. And I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob, Isaiah 49, 24 to 26. Isaiah is talking about the return from exile because God had not forgotten Zion. He will inhabit her once again. Earlier in Isaiah 49, he spoke of how the exiles would return with the help of these foreign nations which would submit to them. And then Isaiah poses the question in verse 24. But yeah, but can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? The obvious answer, the intended first answer is no, they can't. Right? The, 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 they can't be rescued from such a one. They, they can't defeat the tyrant. The captives can't defeat the mighty man. They'll have to be overcome first. This is the strongest Old Testament reference to what Jesus is saying here about a strong man and binding and having and being set free. So in verse 25 we read, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. Beloved, this is exactly what Jesus is doing in the Gospel of Mark. Binding the strong man, Satan, that he may plunder his house and set the captives free. Every exorcism Jesus performed, every single demon he cast out was an uppercut to the chin of Satan and his kingdom. Every single one. The strong man met one stronger. The tyrant is being defeated. The mighty one is being thrown down. In Isaiah, God the Father was the divine warrior who was about to fight for his people and bring them out of captivity. But as the New Testament opens, who does Jesus claim to be? We're discovering that the true tyrant in the ministry of Jesus, the true tyrant, the true mighty one that threatens God's people for all time worldwide isn't Babylon. It isn't actually North Korea. It isn't Russia. It isn't China. It's Satan. That's right. It's Satan. And Jesus had come to say that his reign of terror, Satan's reign of terror, has held people in spiritual exile and captivity away from God for long enough. In the context of Isaiah 49, Babylon is the strong man, and God delivers Israel from this great enemy. But Jesus Christ identifies himself as Yahweh, as God, binding the true strong man of all the world, of all the cosmos, Satan himself in Mark chapter 3. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who had come to release Israel from spiritual slavery. And by so doing, by calling a people to himself that would proclaim this message is going to release his exiles from every nation, from their slavery. Beloved, the strong man has been bound. The ruler of this world has been cast out, Jesus will say in John 12, of Satan's power. God Almighty has rolled up his sleeves to make war. The hero from heaven has come to rescue us, and he hasn't come, we find here, to play games or play nice with his enemies.
Jesus says that their, his charge here to them of what they're doing is more serious than they can even imagine. Jesus says that all sins people commit will be forgiven. Even blasphemy against God and against his son. Right? We don't generally talk like that. We've all got a list of unforgivable sins. That if people commit their way, I don't know how they're going to. Right? We all have our limits as to what grace can do. We all do. Jesus says, there's not a sin you commit that I won't forgive. I mean, you can blaspheme me. You can blaspheme the Father. But you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus calls an eternal sin. Now, very important. What does Jesus mean here? What is he saying? Let's define blasphemy. Blasphemy in and of itself is to speak a word against God. Everybody in this room, in Moundsville, in the Ohio Valley, is a blasphemer or has been. Everybody has spoken a word against God. We're all guilty. We're all imprisoned under this sin. That's all blasphemy is. You speak a word against God. It's amazing to think that insulting him, rejecting him, it's amazing to think that would be forgiven. That God will forgive sins, forgive those who blaspheme against him or against his son. That's amazing considering what happened to Jesus, right, at the hands of men. Talking about speaking out against God. What about murdering him? And what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So he's telling the truth here. Even that is forgivable. Murdering him. I think we have to understand blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in light of the context here. I think we have to let context, as always, be our first guide in what does this mean. I think blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is what the, what the scribes were doing. That, that's, I think that's specifically what it is. I don't think speculating on what it might be is necessary. In other words, we don't go, need to go further than what's here, right? That is this, Jesus is saying. Or they're very close to doing it. Jesus is saying, because he's warning them here, right? No need for a warning if it's too late. So he's, he's trying to tell them, I think, but Jesus is saying they can blaspheme him and be forgiven. But if they attribute the works he is doing to Satan, they are perilously, perilously close to hell. They're right on the edge here if they're not already over it. When you think about it, though, that's not an insult to the spirit. That's an insult to Jesus. So, so how would you blaspheme one and not the other? I think, again, my opinion, this blasphemy was unique to the earthly ministry of Jesus when he was walking on the earth as God, but in human flesh, filled with the Holy Spirit to do these mighty works. There's a reason his family thinks he's nuts here. Jesus didn't do anything that we see him doing until he was filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Right? So this is all new to them for that reason. So I think this sin relates specifically to when Jesus was on the earth. God is three in one, right? We believe this. To blaspheme one is to blaspheme all three. But this is a very unique time in history when God has become human in the person of Christ to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to do everything that he's come to do. So I think what Jesus is talking about is while I'm here, if you attribute what I'm doing to the devil, you have no hope. You're blaspheming the spirit who is filling me to do what I'm doing. You're insulting him. 
You feel like you're insulting me, you're insulting him. And you ought not to do that. What they are doing corresponds to that specific time. Now, of course, I suppose one could still read these things today and say, yeah, Jesus is possessed by the devil. That's why he's doing what he's doing. But this seems to be unique to when he was here and and you were there and you were watching God in human flesh act because all that acting again was because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't magic, right? This was the design of God. Now, so many believers, however, part of the reason I'm talking about this at length, have been or are terrified that they've maybe even unknowingly committed the unpardonable sin. What if I've committed the unpardonable sin? Well, beloved, the unpardonable sin is not divorce. The unpardonable sin is not even suicide. I don't know where we got that. Not from the Bible. The unpardonable sin is not murder. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not any of those things. It's, it, the unpardonable sin isn't even to blaspheme God the Father or God the Son. It's this right here. It's eyewitnesses, I believe, of his earthly ministry who attributed his power to Satan, not to God. Again, there's no need to speculate on what might also fall under that banner. Why would we do that? What could that accomplish? Right? Beloved, if, first of all, if, if you're worried and burdened about committing the unpardonable sin, that's a pretty strong sign that you probably haven't. No sinner can stand in the presence of God and bless his name or desire his approval in their flesh. You don't have a desire to be right with God from your flesh. That's not where that's coming from. And it's certainly not coming from the devil. Concern for God's forgiveness is most likely a sign that you have it, not that you're not allowed to get it. But even more so, I would say this straight across the board. If you want to be forgiven, just come to Jesus and ask and let him worry about the specifics. Just go. Just go to him because God doesn't lie. And if you go to Jesus for forgiveness, he will not turn you away. He will not turn you away. You and I are not estranged from God anymore, primarily over what we've done, but primarily because we've refused to trust in and to believe in his son. So just come to Jesus. Just come to him. He will not turn you away. He's promised it. Because, listen, do you... Do we hear the other thing Jesus is saying here that is so massive and incredible in verse 28 that we read right over because we see that unpardonable and now have I done it? Have you done it? They might be doing it, right? And so that's where all the focus goes. Do we realize what Jesus Christ just said? Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Beloved, remember this. Remember, the Creator is a warrior who defeats our enemy and forgives our sin. And that is how He's gathering this new people around Himself. That's the basis of all of it. Well, who does He gather? Who are these people? What do they look like? Well, for the most part, they're fishermen, and political zealots, and tax collectors, and prostitutes, and 
disabled people, just people, just people. That's where the text goes here in light of who Jesus is for us. That's where the text is going to go right back to the hero's creation of his army who fights not with swords, but with a message of grace for the weary. For those who simply believe his word, pick it up in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Jesus had earthly brothers, right? And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The new people of God, the new community Jesus is building in the world, the church, is whoever does the will of God, which in Mark is to believe in his son, to confess him as Lord and respond with yes to his message. That's his family. That's his people. Whoever does that, whoever is a big word, the family of Jesus is not one of physical descent or lineage. It's not a matter of blood or of ethnicity any more than it's a matter of law or traditions. It's a matter of faith. Paul picks up on this. Those of faith are sons of Abraham. That's our DNA. It's faith. It's trusting God's promise to do everything. Those of faith are God's children. Whoever Jesus says they may be. Jesus isn't denying. He's not rejecting his blood family here. That's not what he's doing. But he came to accomplish a mission, first and foremost. And what he says here speaks volumes of what it means then to be united to him, to believe in him. To believe in Jesus is to have a relationship with God that's closer than even our blood relationships. That's closer than even family. We're bound to Jesus by cords that cannot be broken. We are bound to Him by His blood, by His mercy, by His grace, by His love, by His life-giving Word. That's what Jesus came down from heaven to accomplish. Beloved, He is our hero. Jesus Christ came down from heaven to deliver us from the power of the devil, from the bondage of the law, and from the power and penalty of all our sin to create a new people of God who proclaim that that's the case to the world. He's done it all. He's ended the system that condemned us and showed us our guilt. He stood in our place to be both our forgiveness and our righteousness. He's bound the strong man in order to plunder what he thought was his domain through the emancipation of the guilty. He set us free. He has won our victory. He has forgiven all our sin. All of it, believer. All of it, person sitting there wondering, If you can come, yes, you can. All of it, all of it gone. All of it gone. Every hero that's ever been written in literature, in film, in music, is just us understanding who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Beloved, there's not a moment of our lives that he's not contending for us to keep us free. 
so we will be free forever. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ loves you. He fights for you. He protects you. So I I feel abandoned. So did he. So did he. He just wasn't. Well, he was for a while, wasn't he? So that we would never be. We will be hated by all for his name's sake. And not a hair of our head will perish. Let it come. It's going to come. If I've been told that not a hair of my head will perish, then I'm going to be okay. I didn't realize I was bald until I said that. I didn't. I forgot. God's champion is our champion. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son for us, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is still fighting for you and me before the Father in heaven on his holy knees every moment, beloved. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tell me. Tell me. Not my sin. Apparently not my sin. Shall tribulation? What about that? Or distress? You feel that. Or persecution? That's coming. Brothers and sisters all over the world are the teeth of the beast as we speak. It's coming here. It's coming here. Will that do it? Will that separate us from his love? What about famine? How many of our brothers and sisters are starving and the media doesn't even talk about it? What about nakedness? You say, why, what is, what is that? Paul had been naked. Men had been beaten and stripped naked. Do you know how humiliating that would be? What that would do to your whole, like in front of everybody, you're being stoned to death and you're naked. That can make you feel so low apparently that it's on the list. Will that separate me from the love of God? Will God love me when the world is absolutely shaming me? When I have dirt and nothing? What about danger? What about swords or guns or missiles now? What about falling rockets? What about that? Any of those things going to do it? Any of those things going to finally undo the word of Jesus and have the final say on me? No, no. In all these things, never forget that. Not outside of them. Not if you happen to avoid them. 
in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's not a statement about do more, try harder, you're a champion. You're not the champion and neither am I. Jesus is the champion. All right? I'm more than a conqueror because of who he is, not because of who I am. Don't put any of your eggs in my basket, beloved. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who is the hero. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. You say, well, he didn't say what I struggle with. That's not on his list. Well, he wanted to save space, so he just said it like this nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 31 to 35 and 37 to 39. For all who place their faith for salvation in Jesus Christ, God will forgive all of your sins. All of them. No exceptions. No qualifications. All of it. Such is the power and sufficiency of our hero, beloved. Come to him. Come to Jesus. Church, more than anything else as the people of God in this world, we are a forgiven people. That is how we should be portraying ourselves to the world before anything else. What, what is a Christian? Oh, God forgave me of my sins. We aren't the sinless ones. We're not the better ones that have figured it all out and your life would be so much better if you agreed with us. No, no, we're the forgiven ones. The forgiven ones. If the world hates us, let it not be because we're proud. Let it be because we have the audacity to boast in God who has forgiven our sins at no cost to us through the blood of His Son. If we're going to boast, let it be in the cross, Paul would say. Something I didn't do. My involvement in the cross is I was holding the hammer. That's my involvement. He came to forgive sins. And He came to make us holy. That, that's for you today, weary mom. That's for you today, weary mom. You know, breaking down under the weight of raising children. Or fearing that they won't become what you dream or what you wish for them. Wondering if your failures as a mom, whether they're real or perceived, will actually go farther than God's grace. You know, we, we tend to define ourselves mainly by what we do. And so I can imagine as a mom, same, I'll have the same message for you basically on Father's Day. Don't worry about it. Right. But, you know, as, as a just we tend to define ourselves by what we're responsible for doing. And so if you're a mom and you're kind of, I don't mean it as an insult, but you're kind of hanging your hat on being a good mom, well, being a good mom isn't going to, that's not what determines whether or not God accepts you or God loves you or God wants you in his family. It really has nothing to do with it. Jesus made provision for every failure you will commit, including the ones that you think are because you just, you just beat yourself up. 
He'll also forgive you for thinking that you could save yourself if you were better. He'll forgive you for that too. All our sins will be forgiven for those who believe in Jesus. So, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Beloved, we have a champion who fought for us, who has conquered for us, and continues to contend for us in prayer before the Father. We will not be lost. Not one of his children will be left alone. Not one sheep will be left out on the cliffs. Not one. And listen, he's a hero. He saves you from everything. Jesus even saves you from the people that will threaten your salvation with their self-righteousness. Jesus even saves you from the people who think that they're so holy they can monitor your holiness. They're always around. They're always around. They're always in the church trying to put a buffer up against grace, right? Now, now, now. We know grace, but there's also works. Hey, who denies that? How are you doing with it? Are you doing enough? What are you standing on? Why are you monitoring me? It's before Jesus that I stand or fall. Not you. Let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say? What are you worrying about him? You follow me. Don't worry about him. Follow me. There's always going to be somebody that thinks it's their God-given duty to pump the brakes on grace. Think about why you'd want to do that and ask yourself, why would you listen to that person tell you anything? Who is so sure of their ability to be righteous that that's their message? Talk about blasphemy. You want to speak a word against God, speak ill of his cross as sufficient to save the worst of us. That's a blasphemer. No matter how they paint their words, that's a blasphemer. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. It's Antichrist. It's from the pit of hell that people question the sufficiency of the hero from heaven, Jesus Christ. Blasphemy. He saves, and he makes us clean, and good works will come. That's what he said. So why don't we focus on him and let him focus on us, right? Lay down your striving to be righteous. Lay it down. Lay down the weight of your guilt for not measuring up. Lay down everything about you that makes you unclean. All right, Let Jesus wipe away that shame. That's what he does. That's what he does for sinners. That's the community he's creating. The more he has to clean, the more great of a savior he looks to be. So just come. Just come. Just come. A hero came to save you. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ.